Coming to you from the Morningstar Mission sponsored studio, this is Carl and Crew Mornings. Helping you take your next step with Jesus. That's what we're all about here, Allie. Do you, have you ever counted your steps? Have you ever worn a, some sort of a tracker? It's funny that you say, oh, steps. I thought you were meaning steps with Jesus. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I have. Do you still have your step tracker? Oh, I do. And uh, my daughter wears one too, so she's always uh, trying to compete with me. That's which great. It's never even a competition. Just, Mom, how, how are your steps doing? Oh, I'm somewhere around uh, 3,400. I have 11,000. <laughs> it's always way more. So well, mom doesn't take nearly as many steps in a day as my active 13-year-old. All we need you to take today is one giant step. Just one. And we've got some content that will help you do that. Helping you take the next step in your walk with Jesus. This is Carl and Crew Mornings. We've got Dr. Kevin Lehman with us this morning. He's made house calls for hundreds of radio and television programs, including uh, the Today Show, CBS, The Early Show, Fox and Friends, Oprah, The View. He's also been a consulting family psychologist to Good Morning America. Dr. Lehman, how are you this morning, my friend? Well, it's a pleasure to talk to you guys. I haven't talked to you in a while. I know. No, I'm always good. I'm always good. Would your wife say the same thing? Well, here's the thing about Mrs. Uppington. Yes. Uh, she's ha- she's half raccoon, okay? So she is still slumbering. And about 11 o'clock this morning, she will come out of hibernation. <laughs> and so then, then, then she can keep you in line. So you well, just... Well, she's the... She's the firstborn. I'm the baby. We have conversations like this all the time. She says, you're not going out like that, are you? (laughs) And and I said, what's the problem? She says, you got a big spot in your shirt. Only one? Don't worry about it. I'll be back in an hour and a half. (laughs) That's great. All right, Dr. Lehman, you're you're teeing us up here with Birth Order. We want to get into that. One of your best-selling books of many is the Birth Order book. Why you are the way you are. I want to go to the story of Joseph because I've been preaching through the 17 chapters in Genesis of Joseph. He is one of the younger born. He was the sibling to first uh, of, of Benjamin. Talk about a dysfunctional household. Can we learn anything in Joseph's story about birth order? <laughs> oh, what, yeah. what does it matter that he was the youngest? Well, us youngest children, you know, pretty simple, fun. Never met a stranger. Good at getting around things. We earn a living looking up because we look at our older siblings, you know, as they turn left and right. So we handle things well. All your major comedians are youngest children in the family for a reason. I do. Firstborns go to the top of the class, of course, and nobody cares about the middle child. But us babies, we're just down at the bottom making noise and trying to have fun. Yeah, that's outstanding. What about the firstborn? There's a lot said about the firstborn. Is it myth or is there truth to it? Help uh, demystify. What is? What does it matter? Firstborns rule. They rule the state of Illinois, the governorships, the uh, our leaders, presidents of the United States. I mean, every firstborn listening, here's the fact. Your parents, well, they practiced on you. You were the lab rat of the family. They didn't know what they were doing. They finally got a knack of it after number two or number three came along. So, you know, part of what troubles people in life, I think, are those people who walk around thinking, you know, I got to be perfect. And only children and firstborn children sort of gravitate toward that area. One of the things I've learned in my life is perfection is slow as suicide. I mean, God gave us the perfect one when he gave us Jesus. Yeah. And so many people struggle. I, I like to make the point that, Carl, you know, the, the sin you're going to commit next week, I got news for you, folks. If you're a believer and you love Jesus, it's already forgiven. Yeah. And, and a lot of people have a hard time with that. They, they get a little too tied up in the laws of it all. And, you know, on top of that, we got parents today who bring kids up to feel like they're the center of the universe. If that's true, then where's the room in that kid's life for God? So, yeah. yeah. Good word. It always comes back to God. God's got this. We just need to draw close to him and, but we do have interesting personalities, and that's why myself as a youngest would be very happy with an oldest, and most of the time my wife is happy with me as the youngest. <laughs> I, just, I just sometimes forget things. Yeah. Dr. Kevin Lehman, internationally known psychologist, author of the Birth Order book with us right now. Well, lest we forget about us middle children, we've talked about the oldest and the youngest. Can we get a little love for the middle child? That's me. 
Well, it's only because I like you that I'm going to share this. Because most people really don't care about you. <laughs> if you're a middle child, okay, and you got an older sister, I got news for you. You get hand-me-downs. You're the fewest pictures in the family photo album. But, you know, I write in, in the birth order book that middle children are really the peanut butter and jelly of sandwich because they go with about everything. In relationships, they're a good buffer for that firstborn or only born child, and they get along with everybody. They even match up pretty good with us babies. So middle children get a bad rap, but somebody did go to the trouble of counting the the pages in my birth order book, and they said, do you know you devoted the fewest pages to the middle child in your family, Dr. Lima? <laughs> And I just said, you know, hey, babe, roll with it. You know, I, I can't do everything. <laughs> okay, okay. Coming up here in a moment, I'm going to take this a little bit deeper here because I am a middle child as well. However, right. my big sister is five years older. My little sister is five years younger. Did that throw a little wild card in the wrench? Because I got to tell you, my folks, and now you might dispel this myth, but they feel like they've raised three firstborns in some ways. Does distance in age have anything to do with anything? More with Dr. Kevin Lehman coming up. By the way, we're going to have a website for you guys because you're going to want to go there and get some resources. All y'all, hang on. Keep up with the team on social media. Just search Carlin Crew Mornings on Facebook or Instagram. We've got Dr. Kevin Lehman with us right now. Internationally known psychologist has been featured just about everywhere. Good morning, America. The Today Show, uh, birtorderguy.com. He's written a book about birth order. It's a classic bestseller. Birtorderguy.com. That's you the know website. What? I got to tell you something. That just fits Dr. Lehman to a T. Good to have you with us today, Doc. Okay. Uh, my big sis my is my big sis, five years older, little sis, five years younger. Um, Go ahead, analyze me. What's going on? Is there is there anything to well, this distance in years that changes birth order a little bit or no? Yeah, if there's a five-year gap, you draw a line to start another family. But I would hazard a guess, Carl, that uh, and you are a firstborn uh, son in your family. Yes. But I would hazard a guess that you probably understand women more than most of us as men do just because you grew up with them. You, you know, you had the bookcase, you know, and you were in the middle. So you learn from older sister and you learn something from younger sister, but we tend to learn more from siblings above us than beneath us. Well, the answer to your question is, I think that's true. However, my co-host Allie is in here shaking her head violently. <laughs> no, but that's just because she's a cantankerous middle child who loves to take shots at people, doc. Well, oh, that's you know. So the families have changed a lot over the years. Let's talk a little bit about one only children. And then families tend to be smaller. So this idea that there is a middle child, when you have 2.5 kids or whatever the statistic is, do these still apply for only children and to smaller families that maybe have just two? It does, Allie. But it's interesting. You're right. The average family today, last time I looked, was 1.9 children. Oh, it's come down. Wow. Wow. Come down, and and with all the divorce, I mean, I wrote a book on blended families, uh, his, hers, ours. Birth order is not. I know people want to make it just cookie cutter, but it's not. It, it's involved, and I do. I do a lot of speaking in the business world to CEO groups and stuff, and they love the whole idea of birth order. Mm -hmm. Okay, and of course, those CEOs, those presidents, those surgeons, those engineers, those accountants in life are what? They're firstborn children. So middle children, God bless them, again, they're mediators and negotiators in a very natural sense. Youngest will use their manipulative ways of getting around things, and they're very affectionate, but middle children can be very affectionate too because they're not quite sure where they fit in. They have the older sister or brother over them, and then little schnooky is a little attention getter, and that's a hard place to be. What about only children? Only children do very well in life. By age seven, Allie, they're little adults. They tend to enter occupations, for example. Well, the astronauts in outer space is sort of interesting. Uh, the first 23 into outer space, 21 firstborns, two onlys, not a middle, Allie, or a baby in sight. And that's wow. something. That is empirical data. Okay, Dr. Kevin Lehman, our guest right now, if you want to get some phenomenal material, go to birtorderguy.com. That's birtorderguy.com. Dr. Lehman, let's take this to the church. 
How can the church benefit from understanding birth order? They pick up a book and they go, all right, well, what's this got to do with the body of Christ anyway? Well, the original title of the birth order book, when it was sent in with rubber bands and cardboard to the publisher, had as a working title, Abel Had It Coming. (laughs) And the publisher said, wait a minute, you can't have a title like Abel Had It Coming? (laughs) And I said, wait a minute, you know, if you look at the uh, story of the uh, prodigal son, the the prodigal son thing, I mean, who, who stayed home and tendered uh, the the, uh, the first the firstborn he was the, the good boy and that baby he the bible says he went to a far off land i mean he didn't want anybody even to notice he was part of his family now again it's not a study of family relationships it's a study of salvation i get it but when we talk about families today that's an easy one to pick up on because we have to treat people differently different bedtimes different allowances for you parents out there And keep in mind, and this relates to birth order, identical twins. I mean, they're genetically the very same person. They're genetically the same, but they have different fingerprints. Well, why did Almighty God decide to give twins identical fingerprints? Was it the healthy FDI, the local police, or was it God's way of saying, you are my son, you are different than anyone else in life? So we're lucky. We can have a one-to-one relationship with our creator. You can drive down the Lakeshore Drive, and you can be talking to the creator of the universe. That's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, is- I always remind people, Jesus came to this earth, you know, to put an end to religion, not to start one. Yeah, that's and right it's on. all about our relationships with him that count. So I just think birth order is a wonderful way of just sort of explaining why these three or four little cubs could come out of the same den. And be so different. Yeah, it's really good. This is phenomenal content, guys. My wife and I have read this book cover to cover. It is a phenomenal resource, but it's not just one. Over 50 books he has authored. We want to give you a website right now. Boom Crew, listen to me. This is set down scrolling on Facebook and get a book that actually is redemptive. And we've got a site for you to go get one. It's called birthorderguy.com, birthorderguy.com. You're going to find a podcast and uh, some other links that will help you get some of these books, birthorderguy.com. Dr. Kevin, thank you, my friend. I love having you on every time you come in here with the Boom Crew. You are a blessing. I appreciate you guys. Nice to visit with you. Thank you. Dr. Kevin Lehman. Again, that site, birtorderguy.com. That's birtorderguy.com. How about this guy, Allie? Fantastic. Huh? Don't you love him? Tremendous. The middle child in me says yes. I think there's some accuracy there. <laughs> there we go. Birtorderguy.com. Check it out, guys. Need a break from everyday life? Get away and in the word with Carl and Crew Mornings. Here we are, helping you take your next step with Jesus. We've got a special guest jumping in with us, Lena Abajamra. She's a pediatric emergency room doctor. She's got over 20 years of medical experience. She oversees the ministry Living with Power. She's also a popular Bible teacher, podcaster, and conference speaker. Okay, Lena, I love the Word of God, but sometimes it flat out gets convicting, sister. My goodness. So I'm going to read this passage of Scripture to you, and then I want to to kick around with you some insights from this thing. In fact, Allie, take it away. Revelation 3, 1 through 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. First blush impressions when you hear something like this, Lena. What do you say, sister? Well, I confess that of all the churches that are mentioned in Revelation, there is none that hits the nail on the head for what the American church is living in right now than the Church of Sardis. It it does rev me up, and it convicts me, and it also gives me a sense of security to know that this is not a surprise, the, the life that we're living. Because, I mean, right now, I mean, the big sentiment of any Christian who's watching the horizon of the Christian church in the, in the United States 
there is a sense of concern, like what's happening here? Why are we living in this in, in the phase that we're living in? And is there hope for us? And so when you read the words of Jesus to the church in Sardis, I think there's an immediate like, oh my goodness, we've been there. We've done that. And Jesus has a message for us. Now the question is, are we going to respond to it? But these verses excite me. I actually think it's I think this is where every Christian needs to live. In fact, Carl, I appreciated the opportunity to come on today and the reminder of these verses. And I was thinking, coming into the segment, this, I was thinking this needs to be at the forefront of every Christian's mind. I want to simmer in these verses for the next six months, a year, however long it takes to see God bring revival to our country. Mm. Now, this kind of this contrast between have the having the reputation of something. So from the outside yeah. looking in, it's the appearance of being yeah. alive. But when you peel back the layers, they you're you're dead. There's something that's even more convicting about having the appearance of something that, you know, isn't true. We've all experienced that. Right. Speak to that. Yeah, I uh, have the privilege of working both here and in other countries, uh, the Middle East in particular, where I'm from. So I really can attest to the fact that, uh, and I, by the way, and I grew up in Beirut. And so I grew up with the reputation of America being the land of Christianity. I mean, we came because we wanted a place where you could experience a, a vibrant Christian atmosphere, where we could grow in the faith, and, and among other things, where people actually relied on the Word of God. And so the reputation of America being the land of not just the land of the free and the brave, but the land of where the, the biblical moors and, and, and the yeah. Christian outlook was there. And so there was no question that that reputation has been there. And so we came and we, for a few years, saw the fruit of that. And then, and I think this is exactly what, the, what these verses are pointing to. I think, that, I think where we are, though, in the spectrum of the story, it's past. We no longer have a reputation of being alive. Yeah, I'm afraid to tell you that today... Yeah. When I go back to the Middle East, no one is saying America is the land of Christianity. No one thinks that anymore. So we're actually a little bit past that right now, which is what makes it so scary and what makes the words of wake up so important, because we have been this church of comfort and a sense of, hey, our, you know, our, our, our government supports the, you know, we've got in God, we trust on our money bill, you know, like what more could go wrong? You know, we're never going to deviate from a biblical perspective. And yet we have. We're yeah. already past that. And so I think when you read even that idea of, you're, you know, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead, that was five years ago. Today, yeah. I think we are. In fact, many of us are in a comatose. Maybe we're not dead, but we're in a comatose situation. And I say we, I mean the collective church in America. And so this call to wake up, I think, demands. And so, Carl, I mean, I think you'll appreciate that because my mind goes to, you know, alliterating the points. And so the first thing, you've got to recognize the problem. And so... The problem is that we are no longer alive, is that we have lost that which we had before. And honestly, I think we are looking to government to save us yes. rather than looking to God to save mm -hmm. us and to God's word and for revival to happen. And so we've got to recognize if a Christian right now doesn't look around and say, man, we got a problem and not our country, our you know, government has a problem, not, oh, we lost an election or, oh, my goodness, you know. Yes. Um, Yes. The, the laws that we think should take place, that's not the problem. The root problem is that we have deviated into a state of such complacency and such assumption that a few rules that the Supreme Court can put in place will save us. That's not going to save us. Nope. Our problem is that we have, we have deviated from a worship of the only true God, Jesus Christ. And so I think we got to recognize that problem. Second, we've got to uproot the problem, which is really a biblical word for repent. We've got to repent of the problem. We've got to admit we're wrong, got to change. And thirdly, we've got to respond to God's word. And you respond to God's word by doing the things that he's asked us to do. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Well, yeah. what have we yeah. seen and heard? Well, so that's what we want to talk about coming up, Lena, right there. What are we to remember? Remember then what you have received and heard. So obviously there's something that was going on that we need to remember and return to. That answer coming up. Walking with Christ, one step at a time. We're Carl and Crew Mornings. Special guest Lena Abajamro with us right now. She's a teacher, podcaster, author of several books, including her most recent one, Fractured Faith, Finding Your Way Back to God in an Age of Deconstruction. Boom Crew, there's so many things to relate to when it comes to the book of Revelation, not least of which are the seven churches all cited here. They have things that Jesus spoke to John on the island of Patmos and said, tell the church this, tell the church this. The application points are profound. Listen to this, to the church of Sardis. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. 
wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Lena Abajamra is with us here, and we're picking it up in verse 3. Lena, remember then what you received and heard. This is cool because there's some hope for us here if we remember. All right, practically, sister, what does Jesus want us to remember? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is what started off as the explosion of the church back in Acts chapter 2. And I think we've become too smart. I think I put smart in quotations for our own right, good. Right. We, you know, we, we think we've got it now. Like, oh my gosh, we don't need to do this or that because we're saved by grace and Jesus has done all the works and he has. But there are certain habits of Christianity. There's disciplines of the faith that if not gone back to, they're not going to save us, but they're the means for us to experience the presence and the worship of Christ. And so remember, is basically a remembrance of who Christ is and what he has done. But the way that we practice these things is what happened in Acts chapter 2, where, the, where people devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching of the fellowship and of the breaking of bread and of prayers. They got together, they fellowshiped yes. together, they strengthened Boom. one another, they prayed together. Those are the very simple things. There's no new formula of Christianity. We can't reinvent the wheel. We can't reinterpret the Bible. We know what the yeah. Bible teaches. Yeah, and what's interesting— this is the key. Yeah, no, you're right on. I'm going to jump in here because what's interesting, Lena, is the church in America, although it seemed alive— I think sometimes we interpret aliveness, and Allie and I were talking about this earlier, with a rock and roll band or expressive yes. singing— well, goodness sakes, you go to a European soccer match, they got better singing than we do in most worship services. So <laughs> we've got to have greater indicators than that. And I think those early church ones, and, and here's the problem, isn't it, Lena? We can't do most of the early church disciplines in the format that we've structured church today in America. We've got an audience mentality. They, yeah. had, they had a community mentality. Well, you're right on the money, Carl. I mean, this is exactly that reputation conversation that comes in. For the past 10 years, we've looked at churches and been like, man, they're doing so good. They're so great. They're exploding. And all of these amazing things that we thought were measured by, you know, how popular a pastor was, by how many books they sold, by how many places, you know, they recognized their name. Or they made it onto the famous talk shows. You turn on the Today Show and you saw a famous preacher and thought, man, they've reached it. And we've gotten ourselves so confused by what Jesus values, by what God values in terms of what measures success. And so the measurement of success is a faithful obedience in the long direction, as Eugene Peterson has so faithfully taught and said. And I believe you're right. I believe a lot of this work of Christianity is a hidden work. It's a quiet work. It is Honestly, it is a work that the culture might not value, but it is a work that will tie and knit our hearts together. And by the way, some of that work is best seen the more persecution there is, which yeah. is why when you look at the global church, you see revival happening in Ukraine right now. There's revival breaking out in the midst of a war because there's a desperate need and awareness that only God can save us. We need to wake up yeah. and realize yeah. that we're in the same spot spiritually. Only God can save us. The good news, by the way, and I'll kind of end my comments with that, is that, first of all, there's strength in what remains. So there is some thread of life there. You're not dead yet. Right. And secondly, there's also a promise to those who have, he says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Yeah. And I think the encouragement and the hope, must, my fourth point, if I'm going to review, recognize the problem, repent of the problem, respond to God's word, and then rest in the hope of God's promise, which is for the faithful, there is a light and there is a promise and there is a pleasured father that says to you, well done, good and faithful servant, no matter how bad the culture gets. Lena Abajamra, our guest right now, and you're going, whoa, who is that? How She's can- a fireball. <laughs> how can I get more of that? Check out Lena's website at livingwithpower.org, livingwithpower.org. Your number one hub for freedom stories. You're listening to Carl and Crew Mornings. Got a couple of guests in studio here with us today. Yeah, friends of Carl and Pastor Sheridan is visiting from India. And then Ajit Christopher, born and raised in India, now currently serving as the executive pastor at 180 Chicago, along with Carl. Yeah, it's really cool. All right, Sheridan, we want to get into this. You've got a church planting ministry in India. How many churches right now are, are constituted in this thing? Uh, there are 12 churches which are spread across different parts of India. And some of them are pretty young churches, right? Yes. Pretty some new. Of, some of them are pretty young churches, yes. When someone comes to faith in Christ, give us a freedom story. Explain to us what the cost is. Oh, the, the Brahmin man that was 
had was almost incinerated. Give us that story. This is an amazing story here. Yeah. Um, here, this was a guy who was from a very high priestly caste, right? And uh, especially when you accept Jesus, there is, there is a whole community that tries to ostracize you for your faith. And this so happened that this boy became a Christian and he was attending a church on a Sunday morning and his friends just call him out, uh, out of the service, pull him out, and then they begin to pour gasoline on him and, and set him ablaze. And uh, at, at that moment, he just, uh, he, he just saw a vision. And in that vision, uh, what he saw was the, the picture of, of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and the fourth man in the fire walking along, which is the likeness of the Son of God. And as he was seeing that, suddenly he, he came back to his senses. And he realized he was right in that open field. And, and all that he could see is just his whole body is drenched in gasoline and all his friends have fled away. And apparently they have seen this. There's this fourth man in the fire was present with him at that time. There's numerous stories, numerous stories about how God intervenes in those circumstances and reveals. But, 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 the, but the, as I said, the, the problem is that, you know, the, the narrative is that we want uh, the Hindu uh, you know, nation, you know, as, a, as, as far as India is concerned. And they use all these different kinds of anti-conversion laws to weaponize against, against the Christian population and, and justify their persecution. But the church begins to survive. You know, I, Sheridan, I'm reading a book right now that talks about the American church versus the church abroad. And it, it, it said something that stuck out to me that we've talked about on the show, Carl, that a lot of times we think that kind of sur sacrifice, surrender is part of the sanctification process, that eventually we'll get to a place in our faith that we're able to give up everything. But in places of the world where the cost is high, that's biblical right at the outset. You have to be ready to abandon all pick up your cross and follow Jesus. That's never more real than it is for people who become uh, Christians in India, right? That at the beginning, they have to be ready to leave it all. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. You know, I, I, I remember, um, you know, what Paul says in Philippians chapter one, verse 12, he says, what has happened to me has led to the furtherance of the gospel. It's very significant in Christian life. What happens to you is very, very significant because God is using all that to to advance the gospel. And what was happening to Paul is that he's in prison, but he's saying, but the gospel is not bound. The spirit of God is not bound. He's working within the prison walls. And he's saying the palace guards have come to know all this has happened because of Jesus, right? And, and that's what is happening in the, in the church back home. And whatever goes on, whether the churches are being vandalized or you're being persecuted for your faith or being ostracized by your community, or, or in spite of all of that, whatever happens, people begin to realize that it leads, it leads to the furtherance of the gospel. In this particular church, in one of the churches where, you know, um, the whole church was summoned by the police department because, uh, uh, because um, a particular a baptism service, which happened out in the open, you know, was reported. It, it was a big news. It came in the newspapers and the whole church was summoned. And everyone, every church member has to give their testimony about how they came to the faith. And, and the church stood for their conviction, right? And from the following week, they, they were not allowed to, uh, you know, open their church, uh, the, the physical location where they used it, but, but still the church met in the houses and they continued to worship the Lord. So all this, whatever happens in their life, all leads to the furtherance of the gospel. The more we are oppressed and suppressed, the more the gospel begins to spread. Yeah, and the interesting thing that Ali's, I think, featuring here is this reality that, and, and Sheridan, I think this is hard to say, but it's true. Stateside Christianity sees denial of self and the cost of discipleship as the down the road, sanctification, this is what's going to happen. In India, Ali's right, isn't she? That's at the beginning. You know the cost of discipleship from day one because you can lose family, you can lose income, yeah. all yeah. these things, right? Yeah, prob yeah, yeah, absolutely, because that's, that's the kind of standards that Jesus has placed for us, right? When he said, come and follow me, he said, deny yourself, take up the cross and follow me. And where was he leading? He's leading is people to, to Jerusalem, right? So, and, and when Jesus said, you know, you, you gotta, if you, if you put your hand to the plow, do not look back, 
you know, he who puts his hand to the plow is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. You know, it's not your hand could be in the plow, but God is concerned about our hearts. So it's so important that your hearts are so committed to following Jesus. And there's so many stories, you know, where you find yeah. that God is moving. Yeah, that's so good. Okay, coming up here, um, you're listening right now and you might be saying, well, what is, what is salvation? And some of you might be tuned in this morning going, man, I, I came here this morning because I'm looking for something. Or maybe the Holy Spirit right now is causing you to say, ooh, where am I at really spiritually? Have I put my hand to the plow? Am I not looking back? Am I willing to pay the ultimate price with my life if that were ever to be called on on me? Coming up here straight ahead, we're going to let Sheridan and Ajit, two brothers with um, Indian origins, and uh, Sheridan's just visiting here a short time, I'm going to go, go back to these church plants and all the ministry in India. We're going to let them share the good news of freedom. Get more from your morning show. Check us out on social media. Just search Carlin Crew Mornings on Facebook and Instagram. You know what, guys? I want to jump right into it right now. Uh, we've got Ajit Christopher, my right-hand man at 180 Chicago. He's an immigrant from India. And then we've got Sheridan, a ministry partner of Ajit's. Ajit, um, with his, <laughs> his unpaid side hustle, works with a uh, phenomenal church planning organization in India that you have to be careful with because of the government there. Uh, there's no ability to, uh, you know, you, you might think in India, well, you got a ministry and you've got a bank account, you got a headquarters. There's no banking for ministries in India. That doesn't happen. You can't have that. You actually have to find other creative ways to get uh, support in. You know, it was just uh, a few years ago that 145,000 children were dropped through Compassion International when they were booted from the country. But still, the gospel's going forward. And that's what we're talking about here today with Ajit and Sheridan. Sheridan's here just visiting a short bit. Just a great brother, got an awesome family. He's visiting from India. I want you to share the gospel. And I want you to share what God's laying on your heart. We're in a phenomenal passage this week in Romans 1, verse 16. Sheridan, you know this verse, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul said, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. To the person that's listening, and maybe they just heard us coming out of an interview with you where you said, people in India, man, you put your hand to the plow. And when you put your hand to the plow, you don't look back. And the cost for following Jesus is high. Pour out your heart. How does someone listening right now truly come into a life-saving, freeing relationship with Jesus Christ? Yeah. The greatest demonstration of love is death. And that's what Jesus did for us on the cross. He gave his life for us. And when we put our faith in Jesus and when we accept his sacrificial death on the cross, he gives you a brand new life. The Bible says if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. And he's real. Jesus is real. You know, I have numerous stories, you know, from back home that how Jesus, you know, revealed himself tangibly, personally, you know, and people could see. There's one particular story which I want to share, you know, which happened in Punjab. Punjab is one of the states which is predominantly, you know, Sikhs, 58%. And here, Sikhs are very religious people, right? And here is a woman who has been actively part of a cult, which is a Guru Ashutosh cult, was pronounced to be clinically dead many years back, but they have preserved his body in a commercial freezer, and, and the belief is that he's going to come back alive. Mm. And she was actively part serving, pouring out her heart in this cult, but yet there was so much of emptiness in her heart. And then one day somebody invited her to the church, and when she accepted Jesus, the whole family, the community began to, you know, isolate her. And she was concerned about her decision, you know, whether I've made the right decision. And one day she had a beautiful vision. And in that vision, she was traversing the path all alone. And then she sees Jesus walk up to her. And then he held her hand and then gave her a tap and said, well done, you know. And that's the moment she realized that Jesus is real and her faith is real. 
And, and there's many, many of us today, you know, are, there's an empty feeling in our heart. There is an emptiness. There is a void that nobody can fill. And I was like that, you know, the, the lure of momentary pleasure probably helped me for a while, but it just made my life more miserable. You know, it just leaves you wanting and there's, and there's nothing that satisfies you. And every human, you know, I think uh, it was uh, Blaise Pascal who said there is a God-shaped vacuum yeah. in our hearts and only Christ can fill it. You know, and probably, you know, there is a vacuum that's, that's eating us up. And, and, and if you allow Jesus into your life, he can fill you and change you and transform you. What's that look like? I love what Paul says here, because it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. I think this is important. Belief in India is all in. It's not just a mental, oh, yeah, I believe. It's a, the, the body follows the commitment follows, the statement follows, the baptism follows. What does biblical belief look like? The person that's listening to you today, what do they need to do right now? They need to just confess, you know, that their sins, uh, believe that God has died for them. And, and the love that Jesus has demonstrated on the cross is to free us from the oppression of sin, from sickness, from, from emotional abuse, from, from every kind of problem that we face in life, which hampers us from experiencing freedom. The Bible says, if the Son of Man sets you free, you are free indeed. And today there's so many clutches that is weighing us down, and we are not able to experience the freedom. We talk about freedom, but deep in our hearts, personally, there's so much chains, and we feel bound, you know, bound to addictions, bound to relationships. And today Jesus can set us free, and all that we need to do is just to call upon him, if you call upon him in faith, he's near. You know, the Bible says God is close to the broken in heart and contrite in spirit. If you have a broken heart, all that you need to do is to call upon Jesus. And he can come into your place, your living room right now, wherever you are. And he can touch you and change your life. You know, gospel is God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You know, that if you believe in him, you will not perish, but have everlasting life. That is beautiful. And right now you might be listening going, that's me. I'm ready. And here's what's a, the great mystery. And Allie, you know this. We've seen it over and over again is that the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. But God, by his grace, pulls down those blinders. And sometimes we don't know when. We don't know how. It's what, uh, we, what we find Jesus even saying that the Holy Spirit moves as a wind. And we don't know where it sets. We have a lot of mystery around it. But we do know this right now. If the Holy Spirit is moving in your life today, today is your day of salvation. I don't know why God chose today for you, but he did. And this is your moment. And I want you to pray with me right now. Just pray, Jesus, I believe. I believe you died for me. I want that freedom. I want to be freed from my emotional pain, my relational pain, the pain of my sin. And I want joy to flood my heart. And why don't you just tell God right now, I've tried to put so many things into my life, but none of them worked. Just say that. None of them worked. Just say that out loud. None of them worked. But I confess my sin and I ask you now to fill my heart. I believe that you are alive today. And today... I'm going to turn around and follow Jesus for the rest of my life. Not by my strength, but by yours, God. Tell him that. But I give you my life. Tell him that right now. I surrender it all to you. I surrender all to Jesus. All to him. Tell him this. I freely give. And we thank you. Father, for these right now, this person right now that I'm talking to who is now surrendering their life to Jesus for the first time ever in their life, irrigate their soul with hope, power, joy, all the fruit of the Spirit. Let it be born in them. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We've got something for you. If that's you, we want you to text the word WELCOME to 312 274 9624. We want to send you an auto reply that's just going to give you some practical next steps, a link to some churches. Text the word welcome to 312-274-9624. Waking you up with adrenaline and Jesus. We're Carl and Crew Mornings. 
Well, what a privilege to have special guest Jay Warner Wallace with us right now. He's a Dateline featured cold case homicide detective, popular national speaker, and a best-selling author of many books, including Cold Case Christianity, God's Crime Scene, Forensic Faith. He also hosts a great podcast, which I listen to regularly and highly recommend, Cold Case Christianity Podcast. Yeah, Boom Craig, I got to tell you, I wouldn't know about Jay Warner Wallace, except that Allie says, Carl, we got to get this cat daddy on here. <laughs> so he's did. with us right now. Good morning, Jim. Good to have you with Carl and crew. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the podcast, Allie. I appreciate that. Oh, yeah. Okay, let's break it down. Your story is one where yeah. you did a little bit of investigation just to figure out who is this Jesus. Give it to us, Jim. Well, I was about 35, not raised in the church here in Los Angeles County. Not wow. somebody who was uh, really liked Christians, to be honest with you. I thought they were pretty... Um, kind of soft sometimes and kind of lame. That's just my view from yeah. the outside looking yeah. in, right? that's fair. And and so I just knew if I was going to uh, accept any of this nonsense that was described in the Gospels, I was going to have to test it. And so I, I kind of did an inside-out and an outside-in investigation of the Gospels, the way you would kind of look at it like a cold case. You know, you, you don't. I'm, I work cold cases for a living, and you don't have access often to the witnesses because they've died. And yeah. the people who wrote the reports and when they interviewed the witnesses, well, they've died also. So now what do you do with these reports when you have no access to the people who wrote them or to the people who were speaking to them. Well, that's kind of like the Gospels, and so I just took that approach. Even I just wrote a new book called Person of Interest, where all I'm doing there is taking a look at everything outside the New Testament. Do we have good reason to believe, based on the impact of Jesus in the world, that he is who he said he was? And I did that, I mean, for about nine months. When I was first examining, I I had to go out and buy a Bible, and and I started to examine it. Uh, I kind of used a process we call forensic statement analysis on the Gospels. And at the end of that, I was I was pretty convinced that they were telling us something true about Jesus. And of course, that includes the resurrection. And that changed everything for me. So it is possible to to become a Christian, not despite you know the evidence, but because of the evidence. And that's how I did. Now, as a cold case homicide detective, you are used to seeing a, a lot of things. I don't imagine that you're a guy who gets um, you. There's probably some uh, desensitizing that has to happen in order for you to do this type of work. How did the gospel move you when it really hit mm-hmm. you that mm-hmm. this was true from an informational standpoint? How did God really get a hold of your heart? Well, I think you can come to believe that something is true by examining what the Gospels tell you about Jesus. So if you just examine what they say about Jesus, well, you're going to end up with belief that. But, but lots of people have belief that and are not believers. They're not mm-hmm. they belief in. And making that transition from, from knowing something is true intellectually to trusting in it for your very life, for you know surrendering to it, to bending your knee to it, that's a different process. And yeah. so I always say it this way. If you examine evidentially the Gospels looking for Jesus, you will come to believe believe that. But if you start reading the Gospels and the New Testament to see what it says, not about Jesus, but what it says about you, that'll transition you, because mm-hmm. it's not until you realize your nature, your need for a Savior, that you're ever going to accept one. And you might th- think there is one, but why would you, you know, be interested unless you first understand who you are? And that process of understanding who I was is what turned the corner for me. What power does the evidence of the historicity of Jesus do for someone, though, who is not interested in seeing the Gospels for what it reflects back on them. It's almost like the Holy Spirit is right has to do is doing this work through us. So how does how does that work, Jim? Well, okay. So look, I would say it this way: that we're going to communicate something. It's I mean, God in His in His uh, will, He could have just said, okay, as soon as everyone's born, you will have an innate knowledge of Jesus. I don't even need to communicate it. It's just going to be everyone's going to be born with that. That's not how it works. No. Instead, He 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 we have to express something about Jesus, and it might just be the simple gospel. But for a lot of people in this culture in which we're living, me included, I needed more than that. I need the thing you needed to express to me to voice was more than just, well, what are the claims of, but why should I believe the claims? Because we're in a noisy world right now. Everyone's making claims. And maybe if we weren't in a world that was this noisy, that was this cluttered by social media, which is not making us more social, just making us more tribal. But I think in the end, (laughs) something has to be expressed. And the thing that I think the generation we're in right now needs to hear is not just what is true, but why it's true. Okay. Coming up here, uh, Jay Warner Wallace with us here. Amazing. Uh, This is phenomenal. And we're going to promote some of his books coming up here in just a moment. But we want, I want to role play with you. And this is what we're going to do. 
I'm going to come to you and see how much prep time we give you here. Isn't this amazing? It's great. Uh, yeah, it's great. I'm going to I'm going to role. I'm going to tell you what the role play is. The role play is what we're seeing. We got millennials and Gen Zers that are leaving the church, and many of them battle over inerrancy, canonicity, the authority of Scripture. Now, my my assumption is they have a problem with the authority of Scripture because they don't want to bow under the authority of God. That's my hunch. But what can we do about that to stem the tide of the outflow, according to Pew Research? I keep going back to the stat alley, but yeah. it, it haunts me here. 59% of millennials raised in the church have left, some because they've seen the duplicity in the church, some because we haven't given good answers. Hang on, Jay Warner Wallace answering that role play question coming up. Going deeper in our relationship with Jesus, we're Carl and Crew Mornings. We've got Jay Warner Wallace with us right now. He's a Dateline featured cold case homicide detective, a popular national speaker, and best-selling author, coldcasechristianity.com. Okay, gave you some time to cogitate on this one. Jim, what do you say? We've got, a, we've got a, uh, an epidemic, truly, of millennials and Gen Zs that are leaving the church who were raised in the church. I'm not saying they were actually born again. Many were, some weren't. But how do we deal with their questions of historicity of Jesus, canonization, inspiration of Scripture? Are they bucking authority of the Word of God or the authority of God? You're right. I mean, a lot of there's three reasons why anyone denies a truth claim. One is rational, one is emotional, and one is volitional. And a lot of uh, objections we see from people— Hold on, time out. you got to say that again or else we're going to get text messages out the wazoo here. (laughs) (laughs) So you you can deny any kind of a claim, and jurors can do this too when they're considering a claim in court, is that you can deny it for rational reasons. There's not enough evidence for that. You can deny it for emotional reasons. You know what? I don't like that prosecutor. (laughs) I don't don't trust anything he says because he just seems like a a mean person. Mm -hmm. Or three, you can deny it for volitional volitional purposes. And that means, you know, I just don't think that kind of person could ever commit that kind of crime because they look like me. And so I refuse to believe it. Now, there are lots of reasons why people deny truth claims, and this is true for God as well. And so we have to ask ourselves, do you you even know why your kids, if if we're talking about millennials and we're the older generation talking about them, I wrote a book about this called So the Next Generation Will Know. And really what we're talking about is just Gen Z, okay? And you're absolutely right. The statistics are terrible. But what we don't do for the most part is we – like you're you're passing something on to your kids, and and sometimes you're just passing on your sports affiliations. You know, If you're a Bulls fan or you're a Bears fan, you you know everything about those teams, and you can tell them their entire history. Your kids have grown up becoming fans of those teams and actually know the history of those teams and all the ins and outs and who they should draft next season and all of that because you're always talking about that stuff at the dinner table. Yet when it comes to these issues, they're assumed if you're a Christian. They like, you don't talk about them. We don't, we don't even entertain people's doubts. You don't even know what your kids' doubts are. You don't even know any of it until they finally tell you they're gone. Now, that's part of the problem. Honestly, it's on us. Most people who leave the church, when they are polled in college, they all say they left the church mentally from the ages of 10 to 17. They just didn't tell anybody uh, lots of times until they got – but if you're a mom and you've got junior high kids, you kind of know already that your kids are not into it, right? They're just getting harder and harder to get them to go to church. There's no interaction. Look, is it a part of your life that oozes out of your everyday expression the same way your sports affiliations do? If it's not, well, then that you don't be surprised. If you never talk about the Bears, don't be surprised your kids don't become Bears fans. Yeah, mm. you're right okay. on about that. Wow. So it's, it's going to come down to really being convicted enough to be geeked out about this stuff. So that if, if I if some if your kids say I don't, I don't think that Jesus really ever lived I think he's just another myth in a long line of kind of dying and rising saviors from antiquity he's just he's like everybody else well are you prepared as mom and dad to answer we typically will say well here's a book well I, I can I can teach you how to respond to that but if you just give your kids my book I don't have a relationship with your kids and it's relationship connected wow. to information that makes the difference so you'd be better off reading the book absorbing and becoming the best apologist that your kids ever meet because that's what they're looking for they're looking for the connection of real and one last thing about this we feel like sometimes if we don't answer every doubt our kids have though they're going to leave the faith it turns out studies show that if they're just in a place either a church or a family in which their doubts can be easily expressed not always even like uh, answered so much as just welcomed and expressed if you're a place where you can talk about these things those kinds of young people grow in their faith. Wow. But if it's a place where they feel like, ah, oh, I can't say anything about this to my parents. They won't understand. They, don't, they might be mad at me, whatever it may be. They just don't, or they don't know anything, and they can't answer my questions. So, so we need to be a place where, number one, we have answers because we actually are geeked out on this stuff, and we know it better than our, than our team affiliations, and a place where we don't have a problem with somebody asking and having doubts to begin with. 
This is clearly something you're passionate about. Jay yeah. Warner Wallace, our, our guest right now. So you continue to consult on cold case investigations while also uh, appearing on television, radio, podcasts, TV, doing these things, presenting this as totally rational, totally reasonable, able to withstand uh, the scrutiny. Is that your heart behind it, that parents would be able to articulate to, this, to their kids, that college students would be well-equipped? Well, let's face it, the most important generation we have in front of us is the next generation. It's always going to be that way, right? Because if you think, well, I'm concerned about the future, well, the future, unfortunately, does not involve me. The future involves people who are a lot younger than me. So if I actually am concerned about the future, I have to kind of step away from whatever it is. Because let's face it, if you're my age, I'm 60, and if you're 60 and you're in the church, probably a good chance you're going to stay in the church. But if you're six and you're in the church, there's a good chance you're not. So it turns out we have to turn our attention. You know, you remember how you used to sacrifice as a parent for all the things your kids wanted to do? You didn't eat yep. at a restaurant you wanted to eat at. You ate at a restaurant they wanted. You didn't right. go to a movie you wanted to see. You didn't go on a vacation you wanted to go on. You were willing to sacrifice for your kids. Well, as a family, the church, we have kids. And are we willing? Well, I don't like that kind of worship music, though. And I don't really want them in the same room as I, you know, they need to be in their own. Like, do you see what we're doing? We're basically saying, hey, we, we want to push off our responsibilities raising the next generation to people who aren't us. And sometimes that's your youth pastor. And so it's time for us to reclaim those things that really are our duty to begin with. This is called smoke on the water, boom crew. It's a commercial fishing term when the fish are flooding the nets and it's a heyday out in the Bering Sea. Sorry, Jim, I had to get in a fishing metaphor. This is killer. <laughs> Uh, okay, we're going to give you the final word here, and then uh, we're going to promote a couple of these books coming up here, Boom Crew. Final word. You got uh, – this is your last shot in Chicago to ever speak again. I'm being <laughs> hypothetical here. But you'll you'll never get another shot at it. You got one paragraph. What do you say to us? Well, let's make a distinction between what's objectively true and what's subjectively true. We're in a world right now where everyone thinks that everything is a matter of subjective opinion. Remember, subjective truth claims are grounded in the subjects, the persons who hold them. If I say to you that cookies are the best dessert, well, that's my subjective opinion. If I say to you, on the other hand, that isoniazid is the cure for tuberculosis, well, my opinion can't change that cure. That's grounded not in my opinion as a subject. That's grounded in the object known as isoniazid. If people, young people think that all claims are merely subjective, so there's their truth, your truth, my truth, instead of the truth, they're never going to accept uh, uh, Christianity as the truth because they don't believe there is a the truth. So the first thing we need to do with our young people, I think, is distinguish between these two. Show them that there are objective truths and then point them to Jesus as one of those objective truths. Yeah, that's interesting because I think a lot of what you hear out there is we kind of get soft and uh, stay kind of soft and, oh, we know what you're feeling. But you're saying, no, love demands sometimes you go, no, this is true. Not being a jerk, yeah. but saying this is and true. And someone says, hey, I don't think there's a, I don't think, for me, there's not a train barreling down the tracks in my direction. Well, are you going to stand in the gap and say, well, no, there actually is one or not? I mean, are you going to say, well, your view is, is sufficient or are you going to say, get off the tracks? Yeah, you're and right. So on. I think for a lot of us, you don't love somebody if you don't do that. Boom, brother. That's why we call it the boom crew. That right there. We get guests like this brother, Jay wow. Warner Wallace. You want to find his website, we got it for you. Coldcasechristianity.com. That's the website, and that's the hub. You can find pretty much any everything uh, linked to that one site, coldcasechristianity.com. I want to do a special little plug for the podcast, uh, Cold Case Christianity. You can find it on your favorite podcast platform. That's a great way to take in this information while you're you know, kind of moving around if you're a podcast person. Go to coldcasechristianity.com. You can check out the books there as well. Hey, this is Carl with Carl and Crew, and I'm so grateful that you listened to this showcast. Thank you mostly for being part of the Boom Crew. As we help you take your next step with Jesus, you're a huge encouragement to us. We'll be here again live every weekday morning from 5 to 9 a.m. Godspeed.